We are working through the law of perfect liberty, the ten words, or most well-known as the the ten commandments. We're coming now to the second uh, commandment, the second word. And in it, we see that there is a rule, actually maybe a couple rules to be kept, that there's a reason for keeping this law, this commandment, uh, and a motivation uh, for doing so. So I'm going to invite you just out of respect for the word of God and um, to stand for the, the hearing of God's word. This is Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, You have revealed yourself to the ancient Israelites, not in as a visible person, but in and through your spoken word. Would you speak to us now? Clear the clutter of our minds and by your Holy Spirit speak and penetrate our hearts and minds with your voice. And so we ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the rule is, um, uh, is straightforward. The rule of the second commandment is, is no veneration, that is, no worship of any kind of idol or an image, whatever. Given the context uh, that we've already established in the first commandment, that there is only one God, it is commonly understood that in this second commandment, um, well, there are two things here. Okay, so two things that are certainly embedded within the second commandment. Number one is, is simply, you know, and this is going to be obvious, but we're not to worship idols. We're, we're not to worship false gods. We're not to bow down to them. The combination of words in the language here, a carved image or any likeness, this is a Hebrew way of saying there's not to be any sort of idol in our lives. So the very first thing is no idols. Now, of course, and we'll talk a little bit about this, but, um, you know, I don't know that many of us are tempted to bow down to a statue. You know, you go down to the museum, you know, you have all the statues. No, we're not doing that. Um, But they're also, so those are kind of hard, that's kind of a hard, a gross idolatry. But there's also soft idols, the the idols of hearts and minds and the idols that we, we, you know, just substitutes in our lives that we place in the, we put in the place of God. But the second idea here that really is emphasized within the second commandment is that it has special reference to using created objects, whether in the sky or earth or in the seas below, as an instrument of religious devotion. Or, you know, it's somehow... Um, what, what's in part being um, ruled out here is the use of, of objects in the worship of Yahweh, okay? 
This is where the context and the background of life in Egypt becomes so important. In Egypt, there was a whole pantheon of gods. They had a god for everything. Um, I I, I was uh, reading they had roughly 2,800 different gods, small g, of course. And um, these, these gods, they did encompass the objects in the heavens, the sun, the moon, and the stars. It encompassed all the things of the earth. They worshiped the, the beasts and the forces of nature, the storms and the water and the rivers and they, they, the, the light. And, and um, they, they worshiped um, you know, various gods and goddesses of fertility, of life, and of death. And as part of this worship, they would create temples, of course. And within the temple, in every temple in Egypt, there was some likeness of the God there were, or some symbolic, you know, vision of God. Very often, you know, like with, you know, Isis or someone like this, it was just a goddess, just a, a, a human female, or, or in some cases, just a human, you know, warrior-looking uh, uh, man. But in many cases, uh, or in other cases, um, they could have this kind of mixture. They could use like beasts in, in the case of Set, the, the god of death. They would use what would look like this kind of African wild dog, you know, as, as this image for Set. Um, the god Ra, you know, this is the great sun god in Egypt. Um, in fact, Pharao is the son of, the, of Ra, the son of the sun god. And so Ra is depicted, though, as kind of a mixture of a human with a, like the beak of a hawk, you know, this bird of prey as a, a head um, sitting on top of a human male body. Or Horus, uh, who um, has um, a human body with a falcon for his head. They love these kind of, you know, mixture of, of human and beast um, symbols. And so it would have been a natural temptation to worship the God of the Bible, the God who created all things, to worship Yahweh in the same way that the Egyptians worshipped their gods, to create temples in which some earthly representation of the God would be used. But this was not to be the case with Yahweh. The creator of the Bible is not to be worshipped with any image or statue or some um, aid for worship. And this comes across in our shorter catechism, um, you know, one of these question and answer documents created um, uh, during the 16th century. Question 51 asks, what does the second commandment forbid? Answer, the second commandment forbids our worshiping God with images or in any other way not established in his word. So in part, what they're taking from the second commandment are two things here. One is that this rules out using objects for the worship of God. And secondly, they they see a principle underneath this that we should pay very close attention to what the Bible says or what God says about how God is to be worshipped. And that this is to instruct us as we come together. and, And here I'm talking about our gathered corporate worship. Now, this is where language gets a little fuzzy. Sometimes, so I like to think of what we're doing right now as worship with a capital W, but in a, in a, there is a secondary sense in which all of life is viewed as worship. All of life is, is lived in devotion to God. I, I call that worship with a small W. But here we're, we're talking about capital W corporate worship. 
An example of breaking this commandment occurs while Moses is still on the mountain. Well, he's, while God is telling him, you know, don't make any images, you know, from the heavens above, earth below, or the, the waters beneath, the Israelites are worried because Moses has been on Mount Sinai for weeks. And they're like, we don't know what happened to this fellow. <laughs> you know, that mountain is covered with smoke and fire. You know, he, he, there's no way he survived that. And so they're like, but we want to worship. And so, as you recall the story, they um, donate all their gold and gold rings and earrings to um, Moses' brother Aaron, who is leading in Moses' place. And they forge a golden what? A golden calf. And so Moses, when he's coming down, he, he, he's coming down and he hears them like playing and rejoicing and singing. Um, and they're worshiping around. So there's a calf, and, and around this calf, uh, Aaron has set up an altar. They're offering sacrifices, and they're worshiping. Um, apparently, they believe they're worshiping Yahweh, in, but with this aid, you know, to symbolize who God is. Now, it's probably, this was probably a young bull. Um, a lot of times the scriptures uh, will um, downplay the kind of idol uh, in order to, to mock it to some degree. But this is probably a young bull. And, of course, what we see here is that God actually, t- you know, he takes this fairly seriously. 3,000 Israelites die as a result of this false golden calf worship. And so the emphasis on what is done with these idols and images is emphasized when he says, you shall not bow down to them. You shall not serve them. The way we worship, and especially the way we worship God specifically, it matters. And we are to, to, we are to, to approach worship um, with some degree of thoughtfulness in terms of what God um, requires. Now, let's talk about the logic of the second commandment. You know, is this just a pet peeve? God just, is he anti-art? He's a, an iconoclast. He, he just, he doesn't like, you know, images and statuary. Um, no, that's not it. In fact, um, the Bible is very clear that all that God creates is good. The created world is a very good reality, and there's no problem with us um, uh, drawing pictures and, and even making statues. Uh, but the, the critical thing is, is that we're not using them within our worship, we're, and, and certainly that we're not venerating. We're not offering you know, this kind of you know, sacred respect for the, the, the statue because we intuit that it's somehow associated with the God uh, or that the God's presence may somehow be connected with the statue. God says, I don't want you to have, there's to be none of this. Well, what's the logic? Well, the logic is this, is that God is not like the other gods. All the gods that are worshipped by the Egyptians and the other nations, um, they are gods of, of beings that are living within the universe, within the world. They're connected to the world. They, you know, they're often born, they're, they're created through some other god, or, or, but there's something that's connected to the created order. They can be a representation of the sun, of course, the star, the moon. Uh, the, the, they're 
part of the forces of nature, like lightning and, and uh, the realm of the dead. But they are all part of this world. And, and so it is not dishonoring to them as some created part of the world to have images of them. But, the Yahweh, but Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is not like any of these gods. He's not part of this world. He transcends the world altogether. He dwells outside of space and time. He has life within himself. He has created everything so that everything that has been made was made by God, except for God himself, who has no beginning. And so how do you try and capture an image or associate the transcendence of God with something that is visible from the created world? To do so will only distort. It it will only um, uh, reduce. It will limit our understanding of who God is. Again, God, the, the gods of the, the nations were local usually. You know, they, they had power within the boundaries of that nation. See, the God of the Bible is not like this. He is not just the God of Israel. He is the God of the entire planet. And not just of the entire planet, but of the entire universe. And he stands, you know, even of that universe, he stands outside of it. He stands out of the t- outside of time itself. And so going back to the golden calf at Mount Sinai, surely the Israelites were thinking, you know, we can somehow um, picture God's wildness and God's power and God's strength, you know, by creating this beauty. And they thought it was beautiful too, right? You know, it's a beautiful animal. Um, But what does it say about God's compassion? What does it say about God's grace and mercy? What does it say about God's omniscience? What does it say about his omnipresence? It actually is, you know, you begin to think about it, it's really, truly offensive. And that's what we see here. But there's something else too here, and this is the way idols were used. The idols were used as a way to manipulate the gods. You know, the, thing, the thought is, you know, if you, if you provide the gods with food or you provide the, 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 the images with certain amount of, you know, the, the right formulas, the right incantations or the sacrifice, that you are in some sense controlling the God himself. And what God is saying, no, that's not how you're going to treat me. You, you do not manipulate me. You do not control me. You are not sovereign over me. Rather, it is just the reverse. And so then the the command itself, it gives us uh, this reason immediately that flows from all of this. The reason has to do with this aspect of God's divine character. Here it's it's, um, just described as, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, for some, when they first read this, this is a stumbling block. You know, like, I'm not going to worship a God who's jealous. <laughs> and, and because we we're thinking of jealous as something like a synonym of envy, you know. Um, what is it? John Wood just earlier mentioned, you know, I'm sure all of you were jealous of our time with all these Presbyterians and jealous of our opportunity to be a part of all these meetings. Well, he's using the word jealous there to mean envious, <laughs> But that's the way we use jealous. Like we, we see it as a negative character. We see it as a character flaw. But when it's referred to, well, even jealousy, though, even on, you know, in, in our language, can actually be a positive trait. A wife has the right to be jealous of her husband's affection, of her husband's uh, loyalty, 
and love, and vice versa, the same with a husband towards a wife. And God is saying, I am jealous for my own glory. It is actually a lie to ascribe glory to the things that I have made in my place. You are robbing me of the glory that rightfully, objectively, truthfully belongs only to me. And this is, in fact, a kind of adultery. This is kind of a spiritual adultery of those who proclaim the name of the Lord. And so for this reason, um, with reference to God, he is the only true God. And it's not that he needs our worship, but as the true creator and redeemer of the world, he has a right to our worship, to our singular worship, to the worship of the creatures that he has created. Worship rightly belongs to the Lord, and he will not share it without, with any other God without consequences. And then this leads us to this, this last part of the commandment, which has this warning and a promise. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So what is the iniquity of the fathers? Well, iniquity just literally means something twisted, suggesting that the sin of idolatry is a kind of, it's a, it's a kind of perversion. It's a turning away from the Lord. It's idolatry. It's idolatrous false worship. And the warning shows us that the consequences of breaking this commandment go beyond the individual. It results in the punishment, potentially, of his children to the third and fourth generation. Now, um, it is interesting on this. It's not clear what that looks like or, or um, uh, what the nature of this is. Some argue that this is just the nature of sin in a fallen world. Well, there are two things, really. One is that being in covenant with the Lord, a covenant is not just made between individuals, but a covenant is made between um, uh, an individual and their household, those who are connected to them. It is because of our, there's such a thing as covenant solidarity, that our, that our actions do affect others that are connected to me in covenant. And, and sometimes it goes both ways. You know, the sense of children affect parents. Parents affect children. But in this case, because of the raising of children and so forth, you see that, that, that these sins can be passed down. I mean, think of Adam. Adam and Eve sin. But it's not just Adam who is affected by his sin. It's all his descendants. Noah is righteous... He's the only one, you know, the scriptures say that the Lord finds righteous, but it's not just Noah on the ark. It's his wife, his his three sons, and their wives. In this case, you see this covenant solidarity working in a positive direction. Now, it may be that not only do you have this covenant solidarity, but but it may be just a natural thing. If you think about how um, patterns of addiction or patterns of of just bad habits, of, of dysfunction, how we can just see how those patterns and parents do affect often to the grandchildren, maybe, you know, even to the great-grandchildren. It may be, you know, just talking a little bit about the natural results of sin in a fallen world. Um, but, what, but what he is saying here is, is that idolatry is serious business. 
false worship. The false worship of Yahweh is serious business, that it has consequences, not just on ourselves, uh, but on um, our children and, and great children. And, and don't think, oh, I don't have children, so oh, thank the Lord. It can have, on your spiritual, you know, those who depend on you, spiritually speaking, it can affect them as well. Pastor Philip Riken, um, he, he writes this, as parents plan for the future, they should be more concerned about the second commandment than they are about their financial portfolio. This commandment contains a solemn warning for fathers when a man refuses to love God passionately and to worship God properly, the consequences of his sin will last for generations. The guilt of a man who treasures idols in his heart can corrupt his entire family. And in the end, they too are punished. Now, there are a couple of qualifiers that are necessary here. Because the text actually doesn't just say that this is like a default, you know, that you know, these patterns of, of false worship are passed down. Um, what it actually says is it's passed down to those who also hate me. In other words, what it's saying is it's not that God is unjust, you know, that he's punishing innocent children and grandchildren. No, they themselves are practicing the same idolatry. They, they themselves are also demonstrating their hate. That's just kind of a technical term here for idolatry or for their disobedience to the commandments. And all of this should show us, again, that the way we worship is extremely important to God. We must identify. This is, a, you know, and there's both. A, there's a positive here that I'm telling you. God is telling you this, and He is saying, "There's still time for you to repent. There's still time for you to, to ask yourself a hard question, like, okay, yeah, I'm not bowing down to Michelangelo's David. Okay, I'm not doing that. But am I really putting my trust in my money?" Am I really putting my trust in the things I buy in consumerism? Am I really, instead of fearing God, I, I really do fear what people around me think more? So I'm allowing, in that sense, this, uh, the idolatry of allowing you know, uh, other people to be my judge rather than Christ to be my judge. Am I allowing pleasure or some relationship to be my God substitute? Whatever it is. Let the Spirit speak to you and say, yeah, I, I need to deal, I need to uproot that. I need to renounce that. I need to repent of whatever that idol is. And you see, there's time. You're, you're, if you're listening. Now, the other qualifier here is, where, whereas this curse extends only to the third or fourth generation of those who hate me, the blessing is described as this way, showing steadfast love to thousands, that is, Thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, I, when you read about this, people are like, okay, so like uh, a generation may be like um, 20 years. And so a thousand generation would be for the next 20,000 years or something. That's not, it's just saying in contrast to God's anger. Understand that that's not the heart of God. In contrast to his anger and to his wrath, his grace and his mercy and his compassion, they're not like that. They continue on. They just flow to, you know, a thousand generations. That is basically, we haven't lived a thousand generations yet. So this is uh, really to the end. 
So the second commandment shows us that idols must be uprooted. And it does show us that the way we worship matters. And so just for a moment, we, we, we do need to just address this issue of worship. How do we know, you know, if we're worshiping rightly or wrongly? Um, well, let me just suggest this. The start to that question is, are you at least asking the question, what does God want from me? That's a, a huge uh, way to advance on this question. What I mean by this is that a lot of places do not ask that question. Okay? They're do, what are they asking? They're asking, they're asking more pragmatic questions. And, and again, I, I want to um, be balanced on this because we do have to ask these questions. But they're asking the kinds of questions like, you know, um, what will people, what will connect with people? What will draw people? What do people want? You know? Well, you have to be careful with that because, again, going back to Aaron and the golden calf, Aaron tells me, you know how the people are. This is what they wanted. It was exciting. It was artistic. It was glorious. Um, and so we, we, we need to just be careful with this question. But, but, they, but to begin down the right track is to say, this is God's birthday. If you go to somebody's birthday, usually when you design a birthday party for somebody, you're asking the question, okay, so like, what do they like to do? What kind of dessert, you know, don't you ask? What kind of dessert do they want? Do they like? What kind of birthday present do they want? That's the kind of questions you're asking. And, and at minimum, that's like what we should, this is God's birthday party. We should be asking, Lord, what do you want? And one of the things he says to us is, I don't want images. I don't want, you know, statues. And, and in part, so in Protestant circles, excluding Anglicans and Lutherans, we generally are very plain, a little more simple. Yeah, our crosses are plain. We, we don't have a crucifix. We don't have Jesus hanging on the cross. And in part, it's because we want to emphasize that he's not on the cross, um, uh, that he's resurrected. But it's also with a respect to the second commandment that we, we want to um, pay attention, that we don't want to envision God wrongly using visible um, uh, icons and images and statues and so forth. And let me just back up on one other principle that's underneath this. And this flows in in Deuteronomy when God is talking about the second commandment. And part of what um, Moses writes there is that when the people came to the mountain, they could hear the voice of God, but they could not see him. And this is informing part of the rationale for the second commandment. Now, why is that significant? Because it's telling us something. It's saying that as Christians, as, well, first Jews, now um, uh, Christians, that, f- that those who are biblical in their faith, they recognize that the character of God is, is best communicated through words. That's through words, whether it's written, whether it's spoken, that's through words that the character of God, that the, the traits and attributes of God, that the will of God is best revealed. It's best disclosed. Images, and especially we live in a very image-conscious society, do a terrible job, actually, of communicating well. It's always with great ambiguity. You know, what is that? A picture, you know, communicates a thousand words or something. Well, but which ones? (laughs) And so that's why the preaching has always been central 
um, uh, within uh, historic Christianity and, and a certainly Protestant uh, Christianity because this is how God reveals himself, through the word, through the preaching, through the study and, uh, uh, of the word. Now, let me just come back. He says, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is not a hard and fast promise that if you do things well, your children are going to come out great. No, they have freedom. (laughs) They have free wills to choose for themselves and work through issues of faith for themselves. Um, But there is a promise here that the Word of God will be living and active in their lives. And and so there is this, this promise of future blessing. But let me just change a little bit. Okay, so the, the pastor, and this is where I'm going to kind of, Spurgeon used to say, uh, drag Jesus in, kicking and screaming. I might be doing that here just to warn you. But when I look at this, past, this promise, a thousand, you know, that, well, how's it go? Um, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, the reality is, none of us perfectly love God. If the reformer is right, that uh, Calvin, our hearts are like, they just manufacture idol after idol after idol. We, we desire our own pantheon of gods. We, we're not just one god, people. We're multiple gods when it comes to the idols of the heart. None of us love God the way we're supposed to. And that's why every single um, Sunday when we gather, we, we, we confess and we repent that we did not love you the way we were supposed to. We did not worship you the way we were supposed to. But there was one person who did love God perfectly. There was one person who never bowed down to an idol at great cost to himself. There is one person who placed his full trust in the Lord and not in bread and not in money and mammon, not in uh, uh, being a man pleaser. And that was Jesus. And what I would suggest to you is that our ultimate hope is to realize that the law is always reminding us of, in some respects, how we fall short. And that our ultimate hope here is not in our obedience to this. This is where I want you to get off the treadmill. For I want you to move in this direction, but I want you to recognize at the end of the day, this is not about gaining God's favor. At the end of the day, this is recognizing our need for a Savior, for one who did um, satisfy and who fulfilled this commandment perfectly so that we get in on his thousand generations, you see. We want to plug into his lineage, (laughs) and so that we become the recipients of this steadfast covenant love that Moses is here describing in the second commandment. Well, it's probably a good place to conclude. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Father, We do come to you and we recognize that we fall down in so many ways um, when it comes to idols of the heart and when it comes to worshiping you in a manner that pleases you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom into all of these things. If there are idols in our hearts, that you would expose them, that maybe you might use someone else in in our presence to expose it within us, and that, Lord, we would renounce all the idols. And that our, 
our declaration, our affirmation, our, our faith would be in you, the triune God, through faith in Jesus Christ, your Son. And so, Lord, we pray that our faithfulness, that the love we would experience would be through our union with Jesus, being clothed in our older brother's uh, perfect righteous clothing, covered by his shed blood. And so we are grateful for a Savior. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.